geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. We've waited some time for this, and as I was beginning to write this episode, it hit me. A little bittersweet, but that's to be expected. We've reached the finale of the Panther series. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to soak that up just a little bit. Anyway, let's not parse too many words. We're going to wrap up the Panther series with a nice little bow and hopefully come to some sort of conclusion about the whole damn thing before we break contact while I prepare for the next series. Before we get into the episode, I also wanted to say that I am pretty excited to announce that I will be getting some merch together. Namely, we'll start with some stickers. I'll think of some sort of clever t-shirt design at some point if, uh, if I get that there's some kind of interest in such things. I was thinking I'd run a poll on either Instagram or Twitter. I haven't really decided, but I am working on getting the stickers as this episode airs. Um, it's just a matter of setting up my store slash website. So hang tight. I'll keep you all posted. Anyway, let's wrap up the Panther. I have been mulling around in my mind just how I would approach this episode. I had a rough outline, some notes, and perhaps if we peel the curtain back, I can let you all in on how the sausage is made. I read a lot, a whole fucking lot. Before I even get to writing each episode, I generally have a slew of dog-eared books, notes, quotes, annotations, post-it notes, a penchant for anecdotes, and a need for first-person accounts. Then, I put together an outline of how I would like the episode to go. However, we all know that that is not always the way this thing goes. I like to think the podcast sometimes has a mind of its own, or at least it hijacks my brain. Though, with each consecutive episode, I do feel the writing process becomes not exactly easier, but more formulaic and has a structure I can follow from episode to episode. Which, I know you're all, you've heard this before, it's all well and good for a somewhat chronological series format of progression. Prototype, first model, action, next model, action, so on and so forth. But that doesn't work for a capstone episode, does it? I guess what I'm trying to say is, we're going to experience this for the first time together. So bear with me, and let's see how this pig flies. After what amounts to nearly six years of war in Europe, from September 1st, 1939 to May 8th of 1945, Nazi Germany had started the world's largest conflict to date. The entire war, which arguably started before September 1st, if you count all of Japan's imperial bullshit in China and Manchuria during the 1930s, was officially over, over, on September 2nd of 1945. After the Japanese delegates signed the surrender aboard the USS Missouri, which I have a small personal anecdote, one of the partners of the first tax firm that I worked at his father, so the partner's father, was actually aboard the USS Missouri at the signing. He was a part of Admiral Nimitz's entourage and actually spoke Japanese. He was his translator. 
I wish I could recall a little bit more of his actual story, but he did love to detail the signatory error by the Canadian representative. The representative signed on the wrong line and caused a sort of faux pas, which if you haven't heard the story yet, the full story, go look it up. It's pretty funny because it's totally, it's like a clerical error, but it was done on quite an important document, you know, the end of the war. Regardless, the war was officially over on September 2nd, 1945, or six years and one day after it started ushering in an entirely new global community of nations, as well as quite a few logistical and geopolitical issues that have plagued us ever since. Though for that moment, the world was at peace. Relatively uneasy peace, but peace all the same. Obviously, some loose ends would need to be tidied up. There was actually still some holdouts in Prague uh, until about May 11th of 1945. Some fanatics in Army Group Center... As well as in the Pacific, there were some Japanese holdouts, the last one being Teruo Nakamura, who did not surrender until 1974. Although he didn't exactly surrender per se, uh, Indonesian soldiers arrested him and sent him home back to Taiwan, not Japan, which caused an entirely, you know, just another international issue. A story that has been told or will be told by somebody else, I'm afraid. We're not gonna we're not gonna dive into that right here. My point is, the bloodletting was finally over, which meant that there was a lot of work to do rebuilding the world. And more importantly for our story and narrative, a lot of captured materials, personnel, research, and specifically tanks were now going to be digested, dissected, and poured over by the Allied powers. The Allied powers each had their own unique point of view regarding armor, armor deployment, and just overall armor philosophy, which can be easily gleaned by looking at each Allied nation's own domestic armored fighting vehicles. Without taking too much time to get into the American armored ideology, something we will detail in the next series when we're focused on the M4 Sherman tank, but it is worth noting what the American tanker's perception of the Panther was during the war, when they encountered it, and some of their thoughts after the war. General Eisenhower was not ignorant to the fact that his GIs were unhappy with the perceived inadequacies of their own equipment. See the M4 Sherman. We're not going to dive into the perceived and the real issues with the Sherman. We'll have to settle that in the follow-up series when we get there. Instead, Eisenhower ordered the commander of 2nd Armor Division, General White, to obtain remarks from his personnel in order to gather the truth, at least as told by the tankers, directly to the War Department. It is worth noting here that General White was well aware that his soldiers, like all soldiers, were wont to complain about their kit. Tankers were no exception to this, and thus some of the criticism of their own tanks versus the kind of praise they heaped on the enemy tanks seems to contradict one another when you peel the scab back and scrutinize the wound more carefully. Quote, In the battle for Remain, Belgium, I saw the company commander's tank shooting at a Mark V at a range of about 600 yards. Every round bounced off of the front. The same morning, we had tanks knocked out with hits through our thickest armor. End quote. 
To clarify what technician fourth grade M.L. Hall was describing when he and, for that matter, all of the Americans in this report call the Mark V, what they mean by that is the Panther. This terminology is borrowed from the British methodology of naming their tanks in Marks. So their descriptors for the German tanks were as follows. A Mark I was a Panzer I. A Mark II, a Panzer II. A Mark III, a Panzer III. A Mark IV, wait for it, Panzer IV. And that would mean the Mark V was the Panther because it was the Panzerkampfwagen V. The Mark VI would be the Tiger. The Mark VII, or Royal, was the King Tiger or the Königstiger. Makes some sense, right? I guess. Also, some of you might be wondering, what rank is Technician 4th grade? A rank which really only existed during the war and the immediate post-war from about 1942 to 1948. A T4, as it was abbreviated, was basically a sergeant. However, unlike an actual sergeant, the T4, or Technician 4th grade, was a sergeant in pay grade only not in any command situation. The idea of these ranks was to give soldiers who had specialty training and jobs, you know, like a specialized job sort of thing, was to give them a bump in pay, but not in any command responsibility. You may have seen this rank insignia in photographs or surplus stores, but a T4 had three chevrons, or stripes, that were pointed up with the letter T underneath. You could address this man as a tech sergeant, but he would have had no authority of equal rank. Officially, only three ranks of technician existed. T5, T4, and T3. Tech corporal, tech sergeant, and tech staff sergeant. Which were again, just a pay hike for particular soldiers with a particular skill set. As such, T4 Hall was himself a tank gunner and being a tanker usually warranted a bump in pay from the usual enlisted pay scale. Further quotes from this report, titled, Personal Convictions of Individual Officers and Enlisted Men of 2nd Armor Division as to Comparison of German versus American Armor and Equipment. An aptly named title, if I do say so myself. Quite riveting. Quote, It happened just north of Crefield, Germany. We were advancing at a good rate of speed when the platoon leader, whose gunner I happened to be, spotted a jerry tank. From the distance, he said it was a Mark V. I bounced two off it at 750 yards, and he put two right through the front of ours. I should think that would be enough proof that they have a better tank and also a better gun. End quote. Just so we're clear... A Sherman tank engaging a Panther at 750 yards, or 685 meters, doesn't surprise me in the least that it was unable to penetrate the front armor. Even by post-war U.S. findings and contemporary German studies, the Sherman tank, armed with the 75mm L-40, the short barrel cannon, would not have been able to penetrate the Panther's frontal armor at anything outside of 500 meters. So this does not surprise me that gunner George Marr Sherman was bouncing rounds off the Panther's armor. And conversely, the Panther penetrating the front of the Sherman, which the 75mm KWK-42 cannon on the Panther 
could penetrate the Sherman at up to 1,000 meters or 3,280 feet. Does this mean the Sherman was a bad tank? I mean, after all, this quote is coming from a man who was inside of the turret when his tank was hit, not once, but twice by 75mm rounds at relatively close range, and lived. Does this now mean that the Panther was a good tank? Well, we know that the gun was absolutely fantastic, and definitely better than the short-barreled 75 that the Sherman was using. There seems to be a lot of gun envy amongst the anecdotes contained within this report. Quote, The Germans' high-velocity guns and souped-up ammunition can penetrate our thickest armor. At a range where it would be suicide for us to shoot, they shoot. What we need is more armor. Higher velocity, not necessarily a bigger gun, but souped-up ammunition and a means whereby we can maneuver faster, making sharper turns. All of us know that the German tanks are far superior to anything that we have in combat. They are able to maneuver on a space the length of their tank, How can we outflank them when all they have to do is pivot and keep their frontal armor towards us? Their frontal armor is practically invulnerable to our 75s, except at exceptionally close range, and they never let us get that close. We've got a good tank, for parades and training purposes, but for combat they are just potential coffins. I know. I've left them burning after the first few rounds of German shells penetrated our thickest armor. End quote. Once again... The chief complaint of a lack of firepower and armor for the Sherman, and then the praise of the Panther. Though, let's not forget, Sergeant Markzak, offering his opinion here, states that he has survived and escaped to tell the tale of surviving the destruction of his Sherman tank. That is not nothing. Survivability, after all, is an important aspect of armored fighting vehicles. I also find it curious that Sergeant Markzak covets the pivoting ability of the Panther, which contradicts Waproof's own reports that state the driver must use caution when turning, especially using the brake and neutral gear options. Too much force and the buildup of stress on the weak gear teeth of the undersized final drive could fail. I should note that it was a feature of the Panther, but the driver would have to have been quite experienced to do so successfully. And even then, the risk of damaging the final drive was ever-present. And remember, armored combat wasn't so peaceful as a ballet. To make this maneuver successfully required a deft hand at the controls. And with that in mind, the American tanks, they did not have this capability at all. Final drive be damned or not. Further regards to the German cannons might not be something that immediately comes to mind, and in the abstract, might not pull too many eyes to it, but, you know, muzzle flash. According to General George C. Marshall, who, man, we will have to do a proper primer on him at another time, um, suffice it to say, for now, he was an interesting man and wrote quite extensively about the war. He states, quote, The German ammunition was charged with smokeless, flashless powder, which in both night and day fighting helped the enemy tremendously in concealing his fire positions. End quote. Bearing this in mind, we have some more report from the troops on the ground in this regard, this one coming from Corporal Everett Harris, a Sherman tank gunner. Quote, 
a Mark V came into view and stopped about a thousand yards away. I fired one shot, which was a miss. He made a right turn, moving about 50 yards into the woods before I could fire a second shot. Due to the type of powder a jerry tank uses, they can fire at you and are difficult to pick up because there is so little smoke or muzzle flash. When we fire our 76mm, there is so much smoke and muzzle flash that you can hardly observe your burst except at long ranges. End quote. I would like the listener to register here that this is 1945. These complaints come from combat veterans, not engineers from a theoretical standpoint. While anecdotes are not always the most reliable source, and as General White previously pointed out, the want of soldiers to decry their own equipment in lieu of the opposition. These tales, however, are quite telling, and should be kept in mind for the next series when we will address some of the concerns in more detail once we get to the Sherman. I would like to give a couple of more impressions here because I think what we are seeing, especially for the Americans engaging the Panther tanks and what I would consider an advantageous position. The Panther, lying in wait, utilizing its thick frontal armor, its powerful, long-range weapon, while on defense or lying in ambush, this is the ideal condition to enable the Panther tank to show out and be a tactical nuisance to the advancing American troops. Accordingly, Captain Henry Johnson of the 66th Armored Regiment wrote extensively in the report on this very subject, quote, The German use of smokeless powder makes it very difficult for us to pick them up while they lie in ambush, whereas the flash of our own guns is easily discernible to an alert foe and may be easily observed from a great distance. The heavy armor plate of the Mark V and Mark VI enable them to turn our shot, but our armor is easily pierced by their more powerful guns. End quote. I was combing through some reading for this episode and came across a footnote that then sparked a desperate library search to grab some more pertinent data for this episode. I was curious about this smokeless or flashless powder that is continuously written about here in these complaints. It's not like this was some secret formula only the Germans had, nor was it a concept only the Germans had discovered. Smokeless powder is, for a general definition, a class of explosive propellants that produce comparatively little smoke on explosion and consist mostly of gelatinized nitrocellulose. Peeling the onion back a bit more, smokeless powder was invented in 1884 by French chemist Paul-Marie Eugène Vielle, though according to Tenney Davis, it was first discovered by a Prussian artillerist named Captain Schultz, though his smokeless powder was a bit more primitive. Black powder, or simply gunpowder, prior to the advent of smokeless powder, was the primary combustible used in firearms. However, it created loads of problems. Huge clouds of smoke, which would give away your position. Not a huge problem for a regiment of line infantry, but it is more problematic for, say, a sharpshooter or some unit wishing to remain concealed. It also fouled up guns pretty quickly due to the solid waste black powder produced, which doubly had the attribute of attracting water, and thus rusted the barrels of firearms, which, as you might imagine, was not great. 
Smokeless powder, on the other hand, produced substantially less solid waste. Essentially, all of the combustibles within smokeless powder are burned away when fired and they create gases rather than solids. A two-fold positive as the gases produced from smokeless powder are often used to cycle automatic or semi-automatic firing mechanisms. And the overall strength of the explosion is much better than black powder. About three times as much. And it was also much more stable and thus more predictable which was perfect for mass production. I could probably spend an entire hour on the history of gunpowder, but that should be enough of a primer. Black powder equals huge smoke cloud, fouling, and rust. Smokeless powder, smaller smoke cloud, less fouling, easier to maintain, and mostly less corrosive. Now, this is not to say that the Sherman tanks were using black powder. No, 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 no. They weren't using 18-pounder Napoleon cannons to lob tank rounds at the Germans. But the smokeless powder in use by the Americans was not quite as smokeless as others. Whereas the German smokeless powder was really quite excellent at reducing smoke and flash. But why? Well, here is where that footnote comes into play. Courtesy of a little light reading in Operation Barbarossa, The Complete Organizational and Statistical Analysis and Military Simulation, Volume 1, by Nigel Askey. Quote, Flash ranging, or flash spotting, as it was more commonly known in the British Army, was a technique involving observation of the front by skilled observers to detect the flash of enemy artillery firing from otherwise concealed positions. It relied on good optical instruments to evaluate range accurately and needed rapid and clear communication between the observer and the artillery headquarters. The Germans themselves were so worried about the enemy using flash ranging that they spent a lot of effort developing flashless propellant powders. In fact, the Germans' technological advantage in the field of flashless and smokeless propellants during most of World War II is not well known. It basically meant that artillery in forward positions was much more difficult to spot. As the Germans rarely used their medium to heavy artillery in direct fire mode, this had minimal impact. However, the same chemical technology was almost immediately applied to rounds for anti-tank guns and tank guns, with the result that German anti-tank guns and tanks were much more difficult to spot after firing than that of their Soviet and Western counterparts for almost the entire war, end quote. It would seem as though this unforeseen consequence was actually a boon to the overall German war machine. Their fear of flash spotting was such that they inadvertently created a better smokeless powder, not just for their artillery to use, but for all of their weapons, versus the Western Allies and the Soviet Union, who did in fact use their own smokeless powder, it was just not quite as good as the German formula. It is through these testimonies that we can observe first-hand accounts of how this powder fared against the Allies. And apparently, it was quite well regarded by both the Germans using it and the Allies facing it. Our Captain Henry Johnson continues his praise of the Panther. Quote, in general, it is my opinion that our Sherman tanks rank clumsily with the German Mark III and Mark IV tanks, and their Mark V and Mark VI are in a class all by themselves, having a better silhouette, 
better armor, better flotation and maneuverability, far better guns with much better sight reticles and superior ammunition. End quote. This classification of having the Sherman tanks fall in line with the Mark III and Mark IV, that is the Panzer III and Panzer IV tanks, seems to track. As far as weight, armor, and weaponry were concerned, this kind of makes sense to me. Remember, the Panther, while technically classified as a medium tank, was certainly more akin to a heavy tank of that era rather than any sort of medium tank. Though it was notable, the Panther armor in the front was quite something to behold. Allied tankers did learn, oftentimes the hard way, that their weapons against the frontal armor of the Panther was going to be inadequate in all but point-blank engagements. However, that is not to say that there weren't successful engagements at longer ranges. Sergeant Francis Baker, tank commander, recounts one such encounter. Quote, On the morning of November 20th, 1944, I was a tank commander of a Sherman medium tank mounting a 76mm gun. The Germans staged a counterattack with infantry supported by three Mark V tanks. Ordering my gunner to fire at the closest tank, which was approximately 800 yards away. He placed one right in the side, which was completely visible to me. To my amazement and disgust, I watched the shell bounce off the side. My gunner fired at least six more rounds at the vehicle, hitting it from the turret to the track. This German tank, knowing that I possibly would have been supported by a tank destroyer, started to pull away. I was completely surprised to see it moving after receiving seven hits from my gun. At this time, a tank destroyer mounting a 90mm gun pulled up to my right flank. Motioning to this commander, he acknowledged that he saw the tank. With one well-placed shot, he put in flames. Traversing to his left, he also put another Mark V in flames. End quote. A chief complaint amongst Allied tankers was the lack of punching power in regards to the 75 and the 76mm cannons that the Sherman was equipped with. What this story shows us is that the 90mm cannon of the M36 Jackson and the M26 Pershing were quite effective at most engagement ranges. So far, the praise of the Panther has been of both the armor and the armament the latter of which is unquestionably a great weapon. The former is, to me, kind of surprising. Not that the front armor isn't strong. That's a given. We know it is. But that the perception of these men that, as a whole, the German armor on the Panther is superior, we know that that's not a 100% true statement. We've spent the last 10 episodes or so detailing every inch of the Panther tank to include weaknesses and strengths, and conspicuously, by the Germans' own admission even, the side armor of the Panther, which remember, only 40 millimeter thick, or one and a half inches, an armor thickness that even the 75 millimeter L40, the short barrel, on the M4 Sherman, ought to be able to penetrate, at least on paper anyway. Supposing maybe that the Schertzen was effectively deforming the round enough to cause ricochets, or maybe these reports here are only detailing the failures. To be fair, this report does come to us after interviews with some 350 enlisted and about 100 officers, 
all of these men with varying combat experience anywhere from maybe a few days up to 30 months. I wouldn't necessarily consider the polling of this report to be completely scientific, but it is not an insignificant account of events. Before we move along to the other Allied impressions of the Panther, I wanted to introduce some automotive observations made by the Americans, returning once again to Captain Henry Johnson. Quote, The wider tracks of the Mark V enable it to move much better cross-country and in muddy or snow-covered terrain than do the narrow tracks of the Sherman tank. The field expedient of duckbills added to widen the Sherman tread aids but does not really affect the advantage that the German Mark V has. It is my opinion that the Mark V enemy tank is far superior in maneuverability to our own Sherman tanks. End quote. Ground pressure was definitely an issue that was faced by all of the tanks throughout the war, at the time referenced as flotation. According to Honeycutt, the M4A3 had a ground pressure of 14.3 pounds per square inch, or PSI, whereas the Panther's ground pressure was 12.9 PSI, which is a bit less than the Sherman, but does not tell the entire story. Remember, the Panther's wheels are interleaved, meaning that there are more contact points, and thus the distribution of weight is more uniform than that of the Sherman, which has fewer wheels. Not to mention the track width which is quite stark in difference. The Panther's track is 660 millimeters or 25 inches wide, while the M4, the tracks for only 420 millimeters or 16 and a half inches wide. Despite the immense weight differences, the overland capabilities of the Panther were notably better than the contemporary Allied tanks. Something Sergeant Frederick Wilson, a second armored tank commander, points out. Quote, I have been taught that our tanks have much more maneuverability than that of the German tanks. It has been proven to me just a few days ago that this is not so. The German Mark V, which is much heavier than our M4, beat ours around a large-sized field, made a sharp swerve or reverse of direction in a shorter space than ours can possibly do. German tanks have much wider tracks and do not become bogged down as easily as ours do in muddy terrain. End quote. While it does seem that praise is being heaped onto the Panther, it is only done so by armored troops who have experienced facing off against the Panther in a tactical situation. Most of these men would never ride into battle in the Panther, nor would they face any of the mechanical breakdowns or the bleak strategic picture of a lack of spare parts, training, fuel, or transport. Which begs the question of whether or not the Panther tank was a tactical success or a strategic failure. Supposing it could be both, we'll have to grade on a curve. Soviet Lieutenant General Dmitry Lelushenko of the 4th Tank Army had this to say, quote, at this time, I do not think it reasonable to create units from captured T-5 tanks. The tanks are difficult to use and repair. There are no spare parts, which complicates service. In order to fuel them, a constant supply of high-quality aircraft gasoline is needed. End quote. A few things jump out to me right away. The Russians, like the Western Allies, 
had their own designation for German tanks. The Pantera, how cool is that, as it was known in Russian, was designated as the T-5, and the Panzer IV would have been the T-4, the Panzer III, the T-3, and so on and so forth. I think we should also note here, in the regards to the spare parts and the ability to repair the Panther while in Soviet service, well, this makes sense. For one, we know the Germans themselves lacked spare parts, so it would seem to me at least kind of obvious that the Soviets would have had access to far less spare parts, because capturing repair depots was much more difficult than grabbing a tank left abandoned on the battlefield. Just ask some recent farmers of how easy it is to drag off some tanks left in their fields by the enemy. Though cannibalization was possible, the Soviet mechanics would not necessarily have the appropriate repair or field manuals, nor would they have the training, nor all the tools required to do the maintenance to keep these Panthers running. Secondly, and this is something kind of unique to the Soviet Union at the time, but for the most part, their tanks all ran on diesel, not petrol or gasoline like everyone else which is something we will pursue later on when we eventually get into the T-34 and the other Soviet tanks. But right off the bat, the Pantera would be a logistical nightmare for the Soviet Union. Leleshenko continues, quote, Furthermore, the army does not have ammunition for the model 1942 75mm tank gun in sufficient quantities as ammunition from the Model 1940 gun is unusable in the T-5 tank. I recommend the T-4 type tank as more suitable for covert operations. It is simpler in use and maintenance, and it is also widely used in the German army. End quote. Again, logistics, logistics, logistics. Capturing ammunition that was already in limited quantity for the origin user means there was much less available for the person who captures the tank to get their hands on. Usually, whatever they could scavenge off of other abandoned panthers or simply whatever the captured tank had stored within was all that was available. In reference to the T-4, or Panzer IV, this combat sheds a little light as to what the Soviet thinking on captured vehicles were. The Germans, remember, were refurbishing and putting into service any and all captured enemy vehicles to supplement their own shortcomings. We touched on this in previous episodes, especially episodes 4 and 5, regarding the Instansetzung, the Kvark, and the overall repair network. Armored vehicles especially would be turned out for German frontline service. This, however, does not appear to be the case in the Soviet Union at least not on the same scale as the Panzerwaffe. And the idea of covert operations tickles me when we're discussing tanks. I am conjuring up some sort of ninja Panzer IV operated by Soviet armored troops, something I'll <clears throat> undoubtedly have to unravel in another episode. Soviet scientists and engineers were, they were kind of curious about this new T-5 Pantera, uh, they gave it a once-over to see what they might be able to gain from this technological marvel that the Germans had left abandoned on so many battlefields. Though what they found hardly impressed them, and I'm not quite sure it was pure Soviet hubris, but rather 
a fair assessment that aligns with what the Soviet armored doctrine was at the time. Analysts, engineers, scientists, and military men compiled a document after the Battle of Kursk titled New Types of German Tanks and Assault Guns, Part 1. Tanks. Of the 29 Panthers that the team had available for inspection and testing, only about 19 pages of this report were dedicated to the Panther, and to put that into some sort of perspective, they captured nine Panzer III Alfs M tanks, which they inspected thoroughly, resulting in about 47 pages of documentation. According to Mikhail Severin in his book Panthera, Panzerkampfwagen 5, he states, quote, Combat reports on the Panther tanks were devoid of the typical fluff about heroic actions of the defenders, and are rather bland in comparison to what you see written about the Tigers and the Ferdinands, end quote. It is safe to say, in the immortal words of Shania Twain, it did not in fact impress them much. Though some Panthers saw limited use with the Soviet armored forces, the 51st Independent Motorcycle Regiment had a couple in service as of July of 1944, because why the hell not should the Independent Motorcycle Regiment have a couple? Noting, quote, two Panther tanks remain in working order, following by railroad, end quote. The Soviets themselves were well aware of the reliability or the unreliability issues facing the Panther tank, noting the final drive's lifetime as, quote, 150 kilometers of final drive lifetime, which meant that the T5 had to be handled carefully, end quote. Though I did find an interesting anecdote regarding a Panther in service of the 198th Independent Tank Regiment stating, quote, During combat action, one captured T5 tank was used as a combat unit for 600 kilometers. The tank's mechanic, armed with only a mallet and some kind of mother, kept her running for 600 kilometers without breakdown, when it was eventually lost by the regiment due to catastrophic fire, end quote. So it was not impossible to keep a panther running in the Soviet Red Army, but it wasn't a common feature seen with their armored corps. Most panthers in Soviet service were usually trophies that were sent back to be put on display for morale and propaganda purposes, or simply sent to scrapyards, or even, or some industrious peasants even using them as tractors on their fields. All things considered, the Soviets did not find much use for the Panther during or after the war for that matter, and, you know, with a, such a massive surplus of homegrown tanks and Lend-Lease models lying around, the Panthers were usually left to the museums, maybe a memorial, or just private collectors. The first Panther tank, which was delivered to the British, was actually captured by the Russians, the specific Panther Alfs D was produced by MNH in June of 1943, chassis number 213101 for those curious. It was noted as arriving in a rather sorry state. The engine and the steering system were both kaput, which might explain how and why it was abandoned and then later captured. The Brits attempted to put this Panther D through some trials in 1944, However, this didn't go on for very long, as the Panther was all but destroyed. According to the report titled Field Trials Report on German Panther by the British Army in 1944, quote, 
During trials, the Mark V had its gun removed and metal ballast plates installed around the sides to simulate full combat weight. Trials on this vehicle were cut short due to an engine fire caused by a backfire. End quote. Thankfully for British intelligence, another Panther had recently been captured in Normandy, if you'll recall on episode 10. Several Panthers, mostly Alf-Gs, had been captured and used for various tests in the field, most notably by the Typhoon fighters and their 3-inch missiles. The Panther that had been captured in Normandy and sent back for further testing was of the Alf-G variety, which had been a production model hailing from the Mann production plant. In October and November of 1944, firing trials took place at the Shoeburyness Range in Essex. Much like the Soviets, the British weren't all that impressed, and with the British theory of armor, there wasn't much to learn except the potential vulnerabilities of the Panther, which could be relayed to their forces currently engaging them in France. At the end of the war, the British occupation zone included the city of Hanover, which coincidentally, the H in MNH stands for Hanover, and as such, their Panther plant was located nearby in Hanover Vufu. The British Ninth Army had overrun the city of Hanover in April of 1945, and after the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, the British Army of the Rhine, which is often abbreviated to BAOR, began their occupation duty within the British zone of Germany. To keep this tangent short and sweet, after the capitulation of the Third Reich, the country was split into four sectors. The Soviets to the east, the Americans to the south, the French to the southwest, and the British to the northwest. Berlin was a hodgepodge, um, with each nation having a little bit of the city under their own control. Um, however, Berlin as a whole was entirely within the Soviet zone of occupation, and is why once relations broke down between the Soviets and the Western Allies, the Berlin airlift became necessary as the supply corridors were shut down by the Soviets. Yada, 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 the Cold War carries on for some 50 years. Um, another story for another time, I'm afraid. Anyway, back to the Brits and their occupation of Hanover. The 823rd Armored Troops Workshop of the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, R-E-M-E for short, were busy occupying the Hanomag factory, digging around some of the wreckage and debris of the nearly flattened workshop, and after about a month of nothing too exciting, the R-E-M-E team went south to Hanover to a sub-assembly plant in a city called Lautzen. It was here that the tracks, gun tubes, and a couple other subsystems of the Panther and Jag Panther were put together. During the war, this subsidiary of MNH would complete components of the Panther and send them to the final assembly plant nearby in a town called Linden. This is where the Panthers and the Jag Panthers were completed. That was the normal way things went. However, in July and August of 1945, this was anything but normal. The plants themselves were in complete disarray. Once the German forces had bailed, the slave labor force ripped anything they could sell out of the plant and took off after their release. 
though honestly the plant itself was in a shit state. There were two massive air raids that happened in March. Um, They hadn't really done a whole lot of damage to the buildings themselves, with the exception of one of the roofs had collapsed. After the March 28 raid, the plant machinery had become inoperable, not because of any damage to them, but due to a power outage that was caused by the bombers. The plant was then overrun by the Allies on April 9th, uh, before power could be restored and operations resumed. Now for the fun part. Early in August of 1945, the RME unit, under the command of Captain Hadlow, received orders to build as many Panthers as possible from whatever they could muster out of the Linden assembly line. Sounds straightforward, right? Well, sort of. Without assembly instructions available, nor any working machines at the Linden plant, Campton Hadlow figured he might need some help. Luckily for him, a former foreman who lived nearby, or was staying nearby, it's not exactly clear to me, but this foreman, he had become a bit curious as to what was going on, and he was quickly recruited to help the REME assemble the Panther tanks. This foreman, along with several former workers, were thus put to work on the Panther line once more. Gathering just enough parts, pieces, and elbow grease, the team managed to assemble 21 vehicles, nine of which were Panthers, and the other 12 were Jagged Panthers. I know I told you all last episode that the Jagged Panther would have to wait, and well, here we... No, okay, I'm sorry. Nope, it'll have to be put aside, so you can just put it in your memory bank that Captain Hadlow and his men did assemble a dozen of them during their time in Hanover. There has been much speculation, and in my opinion, besmirchment of the quality of these Hadlow Panthers, as they are so often referred. While yes, they were produced under less than ideal conditions, it should be noted that they were quality control tested in the same manner that any Panther tank would have been during the war, meaning the German Abnahmeprüfung, or acceptance test, was conducted. This meant that the chassis would be run for 15 kilometers, about 9 miles, without the turret mounted. This was to ensure that the automotive components were all in working order. Following this test, the turret was then mounted and further quality control tests were conducted. The fully completed Panther was driven for another 50 kilometers, or 31 miles, and by the spring of 1946, all 21 of these vehicles had been finished. In David Fletcher's British Panthers, in volume 62 of Wheels and Tracks, he describes how Captain Hadlow had, quote, small plaques engraved and welded to the glacius of all the vehicles to commemorate the completion of these British-built Panthers. Each plaque indicates the workshop unit's details and the vehicle's production number. End quote. If you ever manage your way to the Bovington Museum in Dorset, they have a surviving panther which was produced by the REME. It is Panther number eight, and the plaque is there for you to read, which, since this is a podcast, I'll go ahead and read to you what the plaque says. The top line is built in, second line, 823 ARMD troops. WKSP, so 823rd Armored Troops Workshop, 
underneath, R-E-M-E, underneath that, number eight. And finally, the last line, B-A-O-R, 1945. Not necessarily exciting, but still, it's an interesting wrinkle to the Panther story. I'll be sure to post the plaque up to the pod's Instagram for everyone to behold. The brand new Panthers, though bare bones as they might have been, no machine guns, none of the tools or spare parts attached to the hull. In fact, and again, I'm, I'm going to post some photos of these, but the British Panthers looked kind of naked, almost in a prototype fashion with none of the brackets, mounts, or anything that would get attached to the outside of the tank. Two Panthers, two Jag Panthers, and one captured Burga Panther were sent back to the UK to undergo British acceptance trials in 1947. However, due to several mechanical breakdowns, these trials were cut rather short. The British came to the conclusion in their 1948 report that, quote, very little information of any value was obtained due to the general mechanical unreliability of the Panther and Jag Panther tanks, end quote. The remaining Panthers, along with the Jagd Panthers, were used in further trials at bases in Germany at the Hona and Vogelsang ranges, which were both quite large tank firing ranges, Hona being the largest at 284 square kilometers, or 70,000 acres. After live fire trials were completed, and whatever else the British might have been up to, the remaining Panthers were used as target practice. The exception were the few that were sent back to the UK for private collectors. Uh, Panther number four ended up in a scrapyard, and a few of the Jag Panthers too. Though some would be fully restored or cannibalized to restore other surviving Panther tanks, the most well-known and probably in the best condition would be Panther number eight, which, as I stated earlier, is sitting pretty at the Bovington Tank Museum. It's difficult to come to any hard conclusions with the Hadlow Panthers, due in part because the tanks themselves were not made in a sterile environment. Yes, a German foreman was present, along with several workers who had previously assembled Panthers too. I mean, it's just hard to gauge just exactly how well each of these Panthers had been assembled. Even then, the parts available to them were whatever they could scrounge up to complete each tank. Could some mistakes have been made? Sure. Maybe some things were just, you know, they were in place, but not exactly where they should be. Or maybe a bolt was missing here, or maybe something wasn't tightened enough. Who really knows? Though, burning through nine Panthers in these tests would lead one to believe that they weren't maybe in the best condition to begin with, or maybe the chassis and the parts that were left behind, maybe they were defective in some way. There's all sorts of speculative answers, but the final product was the same. The British, like the Soviets, didn't really care all that much for the Panther. British tank doctrine was moving in a different way versus what the late war German doctrine was doing, and with new and improved armaments becoming available, the shape and tactics of armor was changing quickly. By the 1950s, and especially the 1960s, we start to see the main battle tank concept becoming more and more of a reality. All the while, the you know medium and heavy tank idea was being left behind. 
In a world of shape-charged munitions, the whole concept of armored fighting vehicles was radically altered. Following the conclusion of the war, France was left with no armaments industry to really speak of. With their government's capitulation in 1940, the French war industry had been used primarily to fill gaps in the Nazis' war effort. This meant that homegrown armored fighting vehicles, and really any kind of technological advancement, would have been put on hold or forcibly used by the Germans, while the Soviet Union, the British, and the Americans were all able to further their own designs and concepts. The French themselves had a gap to fill in their own design and manufacturing. Not to mention that the French were eager to re-establish their own colonial empire and reinforce their place amongst the great powers. In doing so, they would need an operational tank. The French 503rd Armored Regiment operated a full battalion of 50 Panthers alongside a sister battalion of Sherman tanks. Through the end of 1947, before exhausting their stock of spare parts and cannibalization, the French 501st Armored Regiment also operated at least a battalion of Panthers with an uncertain number of Jag Panthers as well through to the end of 1949. You might argue, correctly, that the French actually used the Panthers up until 1951, but in 1951 they had maybe a dozen operational, and even these were being withdrawn and replaced. While in 1949, the French were still operating a fully intact battalion of Panthers. So, we could say from 1945 to 1951, and that would be technically correct, which is the best kind of correct, but for our purposes, I'm going to stick with 1949 as the end date in which the French were still seriously using the Panther tank. I want to point out to anyone who is keeping track but 1945 to 1949 is four years. The Germans only used the Panther from 1943 to 1945, meaning the French had them in their arsenal longer than the Germans ever did, about twice as long. Does this mean they had more experience? Not exactly, since World War II was over and the French weren't sending hundreds of these tanks into combat, they were, however, training and operating these Panthers like any nation would who wanted to keep their tankers trained and ready for combat. I point this out as the report published by the Ministre de la Guerre, known as Le Panther 1947, has received some criticism from, let's just say, German armored super enthusiasts, citing that just because the French used the tank for four years, doesn't mean they knew what they were doing. I reject this. Mostly because the French had no bias for or against the Panther. There was no anti-Panther movement in the army, or whatever. The French were running German Panthers, American Shermans, and really, whatever else they could get their hands on to determine the best course of action for their renewed, burgeoning, domestic armor production. To that end, Let's see what Le Panther has in store for us. I will interject throughout, but just know that these are the translations from the report. The turret traverse drive is not strong enough to either turn the turret or hold it in place when the Panther is on an incline of more than 20 degrees. 
The Panther is therefore not capable of firing when driving cross-country. We know that, depending on the model of Panther, the turret traverse drive was either underpowered, like in the Panther D, which was incredibly slow, or that the turret itself had the issue of being so heavy that when on an incline, the motor simply could not turn the turret or hold it in place. The Panther F turret was the attempt to remedy this situation by adding an extra hand crank for the loader to use. Elevating the gun is normally simple, but made difficult if the stabilizer, operated by compressed nitrogen, has lost pressure. Nicholas Moran, the chieftain, points out that the stabilizer mentioned here is a mistranslation. The French were referencing the elevation assist found in the elevation mechanism, which was powered by the compressed nitrogen. The commander's cupola, with its seven periscopes, provide a nearly perfect all-around visibility. Periscopes damaged by shells can be replaced very quickly. A scissors periscope with large magnification power was affixed to a bracket in the commander's cupola. Aside from his periscope gun sight, which is excellent, the gunner has no other type of observation device. He is therefore practically blind, one of the greatest shortcomings of the Panther. The Panther gunner had limited, let's just say, overall vision. There was no periscope for him to use, and his gun sight, while incredibly powerful, the field of vision was lacking. Remember, the TZF-12A at 2.5 low magnification had a 28-degree field of view, about 500 meters wide at a range of 1,000 meters, and at the 5 times high magnification, a field of view of only 14 degrees, which is about 250 meters wide at a range of 1,000 meters. This in itself isn't necessarily bad, but when you compare it to contemporary vehicles like the Sherman, whose gun sight had an unmagnified unity sight, which allowed the gunner to locate an enemy faster and thus be able to lay the gun on target in a much more quick manner. The gun sight with two magnification stages is remarkably clear and has its field of view clear in the center. The gun sight enables observation of a target and shells out to over 3,000 meters. Once the commander has located a target, it takes between 20 and 30 seconds until the gunner can open fire. This data, which is significantly greater than that of the Sherman, stems from the absence of a periscope for the gunner. Again, this is due to the limiting factors of just using the TZF-12 gun sight. No type of hollow charge ammunition is planned for the Panther. The high explosive shell can be fired with a delay of 0.15 seconds. This was a feature which allowed the HE shells, or the high explosive shells, to dig in or burrow into their target before detonating. Almost like a, I, would, I don't want to say primitive bunker buster, but essentially that's what it was. The Panzer Granata 40 had better penetration out to 1,500 meters than the Panzer Granata 39, but then its trajectory drops off considerably. The Panzer Granata 40, or the PZGR 40 ammunition, was the German version of the APCR, or HVAP, rounds that the Germans used. These rounds, however, were used quite sparingly as the tungsten required for the core was always in short supply. 
The Panzergranate 39 round, which was a solid AP shot, was the primary round issued to Panther units. During rapid fire, it is not uncommon to be forced to break off firing when the recoil of the gun has reached its permissible limit, cease fire. A rate of fire of 20 rounds per minute is only permitted in exceptional cases when circumstances so dictate. As we have discussed, the recoil of the mighty KWK-42 was 12 tons with the muzzle brake and 18 tons without, meaning that is a hell of a lot of recoil for the gun's mechanism to tangle with. The stress, the friction, and just the, the sheer force of the recoil required the gun to have a bit of a cooldown period before it could be safely fired. When firing off a round, the chassis demonstrates no unfavorable reaction, regardless of what position the turret is in. There's not much to say besides the Panther was a heavy tank wrapped in a medium tank body. The gun firing did not rock the boat all that much. The fatigue life of the mechanical parts was designed for 5,000 kilometers. The wear on many parts is greater than expected. Track and running gear have a life of 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers. Tracks break very rarely, even on rocky terrain. The bogey wheels, however, can become deformed when driven hard. The parts of the powertrain, with the exception of the final drive, meet the planned fatigue life. The replacement of a transmission requires less than a day. On the other hand, the engine was not operable over 1,500 kilometers. The average engine life amounted to 1,000 kilometers. Engine replacement accomplished in 8 hours by an Unteroffizier, a mechanic by occupation, and eight men with the aid of a tripod beam crane or a Berga Panther, recovery tank based on the Panther. Main gun can be replaced using the same equipment within a few hours. The German maintenance units performed their work remarkably well. However, easy replacing the parts might have been, the reality of the situation was such that having the available spare parts to swap out was not always a guarantee, and the French themselves ran into this problem because there were not any more new spare parts being made. They were scrounging. As a result, the Panther is in no way a strategic tank. The Germans did not hesitate to economically increase the engine life by loading the tank onto rail cars, even for very short distances of only 25 kilometers. The truly weak spot of the Panther is its final drive, which is of too weak a design and has an average fatigue life of only 150 kilometers. I just want to point out here that both the Soviets and the French agree that the average fatigue life of the final drive, they both found it to be 150 kilometers. Half of the abandoned Panthers found in Normandy in 1944 showed evidence of breaks in the final drive. In order to prevent these breaks, it is recommended that the following points be closely observed. When driving downhill and in reverse, as well as on uneven terrain, to be particularly careful when shifting to a lower gear. In addition, a Panther should never be towed without uncoupling the final drive previously. Finally, under no circumstances should both steering levers be operated simultaneously, regardless of the situation. This comment here, especially that last portion, under no circumstances should both steering levers be operated simultaneously, 
which contradicts the American report of how much envy they had for the pivot or neutral steering capabilities of the Panther. Remember, the Germans were even against this practice, and as one small mistake could render the entire tank immobile, that maneuver was a little risky, right? The French seem to have learned this lesson the hard way, as this maneuver was just straight up forbidden. A smoke grenade thrown onto the rear deck or the vent openings of the engine will start a fire. With the amount of gasoline and oil pooling in the bottom of the engine compartment, this little tidbit does not surprise me. The incredible error of enforcing that the Panther be built in a waterproof shell in order to ford rivers, which honestly didn't end up happening all that much, caused the through-line problems from beginning to end with the Panther of engine fires. The running gear is sensitive to HE shells. Calibers 105mm and greater can render the vehicle immobile. Well, this is true for nearly all tanks on the battlefield. A 105 shell is not something easily shrugged off by the exposed and unarmored running gear of any tank. Fragmentation shells, or 75mm rounds, which strike in the same spot on the front plate, can penetrate or cause the weld seams to break. I've noted this several times in the series that Bainite was one of the culprits for this sort of issue. Bainite, again, caused the metal to become brittle and crack, or for the tension of the plate to split at the weld seams when hit by enough force. No place of the Panther is so armored that it can withstand a Panzerfaust or Panzerschreck. In all cases, the great range of the gun should be exploited to the fullest. Fire can commence at ranges of 2,000 meters with considerable accuracy. The majority of hits were accomplished at a range of 1,400 to 2,000 meters. The ammunition expenditure was relatively low. On the average, the fourth or fifth shot found its mark even when using HE shells. As was envisioned from the beginning of the Panther program, utilizing the powerful gun and the heavy frontal armor at great distances was the best possible way to take advantage of the tank's prowess in combat. The Panther was praised by the French, and everyone else for that matter, for its powerful gun and strong frontal armor. In its own day, the Panther was a capable tank on the battlefield, if it managed to make it to the battlefield. However, the French make it clear in their report that even the German documentation on the vehicle criticized the automotive components that were the explicit weak link in the chain. Let's look back in on Le Panther. Inadequate for strategic mobility due to the short fatigue life of its engine, which lay between six and seven times the vehicle's range. The Panther cannot cover large distance and must restrict itself to short distances. Deficiency in mobility due to an inadequate steering mechanism, which had a very high breakdown rate. Operations required generally specialized personnel. In the Wehrmacht, an officer or Oberfeldwebel as a tank commander, Unteroffiziers as gunner and driver. Once the Germans could no longer field experienced tank crews, it was apparent that the Panthers were no longer employed operationally or were abandoned because of these mechanical breakdowns. Finally, the Panther, for all its prowess, was, quote, in no way a strategic tank, end quote. 
This report being the culmination of three years worth of training, exercises, maintenance, breakdowns, live fire trials, proving grounds, and whatever else the French could muster when determining the direction of their armored forces. After this report, detailed in 1947, the French Panthers began their withdrawal from service, though reports indicate there were about 15 active Panthers still in service of the 503rd, in 1951. A gradual fall from grace, which seems to reinforce what we have dissected and discussed here throughout the Panther series, as well as the American, British, and Soviet conclusions. With all of that now on the record, we have a few more things to tie off before we can close the books on the Panther. I did want to leave off this French section with a little tidbit from Nicolas Moran, better known as the Chieftain. Quote, Perhaps the most telling observation of the French experiences with the Panther is their response to concerns of Chinese armor in Indochina. When the French government became aware that the Chinese communists had received Soviet-made IS tanks, they concluded that their own forces in French Indochina, now Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, needed powerful mobile forces to repel any Chinese intervention. They considered sending Panther tanks, but determined that it would not be possible to provide the support that Panthers required in the settings of a distant colony with an inadequate rail infrastructure. As a result, they sent units equipped with U.S.-made M36 tank destroyers. End quote. With the advent of new tank technology coming online in the early 1950s, the Panther series was, at least from a technological standpoint, a dead end. There are some arguments to be made that the failed ARL-44 tank that the French had produced and used for a couple of years in the 1950s was born of both Panther and Tiger borrowed technology along with the early 1940s French tech. To put it bluntly, the ARL-44 was a disaster. Only 60 were produced and delivered between 1949 and 1951, which were replacing the Panthers in the 503rd Regiment de Chars, or Armored Regiment. Many of these tanks had problems with their brakes, gearbox, and suspension, which were apparently quite frail, resulting in a less than stellar performance in a rather short lifespan. We'll have to do an episode on the ARL-44 because the design process and the history of the vehicle is kind of interesting, but as far as it relates to the Panther, this is where the French story ends. The final meeting of the Panzer Commission took place on January 23rd of 1945, in which most of the heavy hitters of the armaments industry were present. There were some notable exceptions. Reich Minister Speer, General Oberst Guderian, Dr. Porsche, and Dr. Maybach, who were probably busy elsewhere losing the war. While we have detailed notes of the entire meeting, mostly filled with future projects and hopeful upgrades, like a new 75mm gun for the Panzer Jaeger units, there was an 88mm L71 gun to be fitted into a Panther F turret, which we had discussed last time. However, a portion of the meeting, in which General Tomal, 
who was at this time acting as General Inspector de Panzertruppen, gave his insight into the general tank situation. Quote, We have lost large amounts of spare parts in the east. Heavy armored vehicles have also been lost. End quote. After which, like a ransom note penned from the cutout letters of a magazine, he makes a couple of demands. Quote, Conservation measures must be employed in regards to spare parts and recovery vehicles. Higher rates of delivery for both spare parts and recovery vehicles. As many components as possible should be manufactured within the constraints of the raw material shortage. End quote. As the meeting continues, diesel engines are once again discussed, and I want to stress here the Germans did not have a diesel tank engine to speak of at least not in any form ready to be dropped into a tank. Moreover, General Thomas stressed that even if a fuel-injected engine could be devised, it should not be implemented in the same speed as which the Maybach HL230 had been introduced itself. Quote, The engine must have reached 100% maturity when it reaches the frontline troops. End quote. I bring this up only to highlight that in 1945, the almost PTSD-inducing path of the Panther had left scars within the Panzer Commission. General Thomas continues his lamentation of the current status of the Panzerwaffe by reading from reports prior to the 1945 offensive. In these reports, we can surmise that it wasn't only the Panther which was suffering from weak components, notably the final drive. Quote, from the front, there continues to be serious complaints regarding final drive breakdowns in all vehicle types. Approximately 200 breakdowns have been reported with the Panzer Jaeger 38T, 500 defective final drives in the Panzer IV, from the Panthers, 370, and from the Tigers, roughly 100. End quote. Under these circumstances, it was simply impossible to think that the Panzerwaffe would be in any sort of working order as to commit themselves to an offensive, though we ought to be aware that in 1945, nearly all of the so-called divisions available for any alleged offensives were divisions in name only. They were all outright shells of their former selves. And on paper, it might look good that such-and-such such division will be joining up with such-and-such such Panzergrenadier division and push east into some fantasy land objective. However, the final drive was still an issue. General Tamal again requests an increase in efforts to better the final drive. The troops are losing their confidence in their Panzers and simply abandoning them when a final drive fails rather than try to repair the vehicle. Almost comically, because at this level of the Waffenamt, these old men fighting amongst themselves just reeks of bureaucratic buffoonery. From the minutes taken of this meeting regarding the final drive problem, quote, Director Wiebeck claims that the Hedestechnisches Bureau of the Waffenamt had for its part rejected the Sun and Planet final drive and demanded the spur wheel reduction drive. This claim led to a confrontation between Oberst Holzhauer and Oberauret Nonagol. Wiebeck clarified that for the past one and a half years, there has been ongoing discussion regarding the introduction of the planetary gearing, but as of yet, nothing significant has been accomplished. End quote. 
This means, for as long as we've been detailing this weakness throughout the pod, the German Waffenamt had been well aware and attempting to find a solution. However, we know that there was a solution already available. It was just going to cost the armaments industry twice as much in both material cost and manufacturing effort, something that the short-sighted war industry was unwilling and in many ways probably unable to do so. In all of the shortcuts used to cut the cost of the Panther, they really shit the bed on the final drive. It's an important piece and quite difficult to quantify exactly how much strain this shortcoming put on the Panther from factory to front line. It's an exercise in abstraction, I guess, because I am not in a position to come up with some sort of formula to quantify it, although I am in a position to speculate which I will do. I won't drone on too much about it, but it makes me think of those idioms growing up. Measure thrice, cut once. Or haste makes waste. Or, you know, just make sure everything is in working order before you send that 45.5 ton armored vehicle off to war with an understrength final drive. We all remember that one, right? The butterfly effect of the final drive just explodes once the panther hits the front. For each defective or damaged final drive, a new one must be built. But that means a draw on resources, manpower, transportation, and it also effectively removes that combat unit from their duties for a period of time that the Germans really could not afford. Not that every eventuality could be prepared for or tested, but this being the Achilles heel of the whole project seems like an immense oversight. In a world of shoulda, woulda, coulda hindsight, the Panther final drive never reaching maturity before implementation is the black mark on the Panther's record book, in my opinion. I would like to offer the Germans' more pragmatic view of the Panther, at least as pragmatic as someone like Guderian or Tamal could be during the latter days of the Reich. Some of this report seems like regurgitated information from previous episodes. I assure you it is not. However, the lessons here are essentially the same from the end of 1943 through to the end of the war. Quote, With a combination of well-trained personnel, careful handling, and tactically sound operations, great victories are possible. End quote. So far, it reads like we're going to get an account filled with heroics and farce, However, it really highlights the absolute pros and cons of the Panther while employed in pristine combat conditions. What I mean by pristine combat conditions is that this battle, which happened on the step where the Panthers could now exercise all of their positive attributes while minimizing the negative ones. Quote, The high-firing performance of the gun is to be exploited in all circumstances. Firing can commence at a range of 2,000 meters with very favorable results. The bulk of all heavy weapons and tanks which were destroyed were done so at a combat range of between 1,400 to 2,000 meters. The ammunition required to do so was relatively low. End quote. This tracks with everything we know about the KWK-42 and the TZF-12A sighting device. The Panther had the astute ability to reach out and touch somebody at pretty insane ranges. 
Quote, Based on prisoner interrogation, it was found that the Russian is extremely impressed with the flat trajectory of the 75mm gun and will avoid engaging the Panther in open combat when he does not have a superior number of tanks. End quote. Distance was the Panther's ally. According to range tables put together by Germans in May of 1944, nothing, and that's italicized, Nothing could penetrate the Panther at 2,000 meters, which is about 6,500 feet or one and a quarter miles. Though, remember, penetration tables only tell a small part of the story. You know, a lucky hit, a faulty plate, an aggressive HE round. All sorts of things can happen when under fire from an enemy cannon. The point is, the Panther was quite formidable at these kinds of ranges which is exactly how the Panther was intended to be used in this seemingly vacuum of a battlefield that this report details. Quote, In all instances, the enemy should be denied the opportunity of engaging the Panther at closer ranges. Wide-ranging battlefield reconnaissance is therefore indispensable. It has proven necessary to send a platoon of Panther tanks 1,000 to 1,500 meters ahead, drawing the enemy fire out early so that the remaining tanks can open fire at a safe distance, end quote. You know, I wonder if they pulled straws to determine which platoon would be the bait. The report continues, quote, Flank protection is to be given to the Panther tank due to its sensitive side armor. In all cases, the unit leader should hold a reserve of tanks back with which he can snuff out any threats to his flank at a moment's notice. It has proven necessary that the available Panzerkampfwagen IV tanks assume the role of flank protection, while the Panther tanks rush forward as a spearhead and threaten the enemy. End quote. This is getting into a little bit more of the minutiae, but at the regimental level, and according to the K stand of late 1944, early 1945, the Mittlerer Panzer units, medium Panzer units, would have been either Panzer IVs or Panthers, or a mix of both that would fill that role. Side note, we'll get into this later when we get to the Panzer IV series eventually, but I want to note here that earlier when Oberst Thomas mentioned 500 complaints about Panzer IV final drives, say what? At this stage of the war, the Alfs G, H, and J variants, of which they produced about 6,500, these were the upgunned, up-armored, and thus heavier versions of the Panzer IV, by about 5 to 7 tons over the initial weight that the vehicle itself was designed. Sounds familiar. As such, just like the Panther, the Panzer IV automotive components, <clears throat> final drive, was overburdened and thus prone to breakages. Anyway, the lighter Panzer IV units attached to the Panther units were invaluable as reserve and flank or holding units to keep the Panthers' more vulnerable sides relatively safe from enemy harassment. Finally, the report gets to the automotive portion of the Panther, where we find the culprit once again. Quote, In spite of the improved engine performance, the battalion had reached an average of 600 to 700 kilometers per tank, with only a dozen or so engine changes, it is recommended that the tanks be loaded when traveling distances of over 100 kilometers. Since the running gear and final drives suffer tremendously, especially in winter. 
End quote. 600 to 700 kilometers, or 375 to 430 miles per tank, is quite an improvement over previous estimates and reports of 450 kilometers, or 280 miles, though the final drive's lifespan still came in very short of these figures, ranging anywhere from 150 kilometers to 300 kilometers on average, which is only 90 to 180 miles. This report, which the General Inspector der Panzertruppen accepts and agrees with entirely, is just one of many that sound eerily similar to reports we've read before. I would like to note that in 1945, Heinz Guderian had already been promoted to Chef General Stab des Heers in April of 1944, and Oberst Thomas would have been most likely filling in as the General Inspector der Panzertruppen. We discussed a report in episode 7 that was produced in the Notizen for Panzertruppen, the Nazi magazine which had printed Heinz Guderian's notes which parroted a similar sentiment in 1944. Almost as if the commanders of this Abteilung had put those earlier lessons to use. Though, to me, it seems that these were the tenets that made for a successful employment of the Panther. As a caveat, this Abteilung was undoubtedly one of veteran Panzertruppen, which in 1945 would have been quite the exception rather than the rule. When we detailed the Panther Aufs G combat sorties, it was noted time and time again how improper use of the Panthers had led to higher than expected casualties of both Panther and personnel. The self-licking lollipop of sending veteran tankers into the arms of attrition which only then reduces the veterancy of these units, who then themselves are forced to replace those losses with greener and greener troops, only to be fed once again into the gaping maw of attrition. During the lifetime of the Panthers' production, and I love this tidbit, there were, according to several sources, including original factory documentation, anywhere from 6,003 to 6,042 Panthers built. Broken down by Osferung, there were 842 Panther Ds, 2,200 Panther As, and 2,961 Panther Gs. For those of you able to do quick maths in your head, we'll quickly realize that that adds up to 6,003, which is correct, but wait, there's more. Where are those 39 extra Panthers coming from? Well, DMAG was the company that rebuilt Panthers of which 50 is the magic number usually, which still skews the production figures further, because while these Panthers were not entirely new-built Panthers, they were often registered as new Panthers, as a destroyed Aus D could and would oftentimes be rebuilt into an Aus A, or a kind of a hybrid A-slash-G tank with new and upgraded parts. Kind of a Ship of Theseus situation? So, it becomes difficult to pinpoint exactly how many Panthers were built, but we can safely say at least 6,000 without much controversy. How many were destroyed throughout the war is another hard-to-pin-down beast as well. The figure that I've landed on, after pouring over several sources, is 4,745 Panthers of all variants were undoubtedly destroyed. About 
78% of those produced, meaning 1,297 were unaccounted for, at least lost in the sense of their fate was unknown in May of 1945. Considering the number of surviving panthers that exist is quite limited, it might be safer to argue that this remainder was most likely in the form of damaged, abandoned, captured, or just scrapped panthers. Vehicles that were unaccounted for, or, you know, because the war was concluding, the Germans were unable to give an accurate account of the whereabouts of these remaining panthers. Walter Spielberger leaves his readers with this sentiment at the end of his book, Panther and Its Variants. Quote, The Panzerkampfwagen Panther was, technically speaking, a unique accomplishment from both the army and armaments offices responsible as well as the industry. Even if not all its weak points could be eliminated due to reasons of design manufacturing, the Panther could take on any enemy tank with an excellent prospect for victory. It possessed an outstanding gun firing a flat trajectory, the superior frontal armor and its mobility in terrain thanks to an acceptable performance weight and advanced suspension. As opposed to these, there was its above-average height, weak side armor, inadequate operating range, as well as an unreliable engine and final drive. Coupled with these problems was an insufficient production of replacement parts for a vehicle which was forced into mass production before reaching technical maturity, end quote. This, to me, is an excellent summation of the Panther Project, and in my opinion, conveys a lot about how I feel about the Panther. There are many aspects to be lauded, while simultaneously there is plenty to condemn. It is from this perspective that I wish to pass judgment on the Panther. I'm not exactly a person from whom a rating or grade is to be taken too, too seriously, but I believe I stand a fair chance of handing down an opinion with a certain kind of weight. After all, we have just gone through the Panther with a fine-tooth comb over the course of 11 episodes. I'm still in disbelief, and with that said, I'd like to give out our very first Panzer Podcast report card which I've split into four sections. Number one, firepower. The 75mm KWK 42L70 is an excellent cannon. As noted several times, combined with the excellent gun sight, this weapon was deadly out to ranges of 2,000 meters and beyond, with pinpoint accuracy. This earns the Panther an A grade for firepower. Second, we have protection. The very thick, sloped frontal armor was superb on the hull. However, the sides were particularly weak, insomuch that mild steel schützen were required to even be a passably effective armor. The turret mantlet was adequately strong, though the shot trap prior to the chin upgrade left much to be desired. The roof armor was as thin as all get out, leaving the Panther quite vulnerable to artillery and airstrikes. Poor quality metal later in the war also affects the score. This earns the Panther a C grade in protection. Third, we have tactical mobility. The Panther's off-road capabilities were strong. A good power-to-weight ratio, wide tracks, and capable engine enabled the Panther to move about the battlefield quite well, 
Notably, however, the reverse gear was rather slow, and the fragile final drive demanded expert finesse to operate properly. This earns the Panther a B- grade in the range of tactical mobility. Finally, we have strategic mobility. Here is where the Panther is most hindered. As we have studied, the logistical network to bring spare parts and replacement Panthers up to the front was always a constant struggle. This, coupled with the fragility of critical automotive components and a short lifespan of the final drive, was a weakness in the support chain to keep the Panther running, thus requiring the Panther to be transported over rail lines to keep the critical components safe from harm or from having to drive more than 100 kilometers. This earns the Panther a D grade in strategic mobility. Overall grade, and GPA, is a 2.42 or a C plus average. Like I've been told, C's are passing, and a C-plus average isn't horrible, but judging any tank is going to be quite subjective, but I thought I might take a shot at it. Why the hell not, right? I think the main takeaway here is in how one would judge any armored fighting vehicle as successful or not. I mean, building 6,000 of them would seem to mean to me that the Germans thought it successful enough to keep production up throughout the war. After all, the Panther was the third most produced armored vehicle behind the Stug and the Panzer IV and the Third Reich. For me personally, I think it might be better for us to judge the Panther on two separate scales, tactical versus strategic. Tactically speaking, and this is where it gets convoluted, in a vacuum, a Panther with a good crew, enough fuel, plenty of ammunition, and a field commander who knows how to use them properly and this kind of spills into strategic thought, but we'll allow it, this gives the Panther an advantage against most contemporary armored vehicles. Again, I wish to point out that in a vacuum, and on a level of playing field that suits the Panther best, tank versus tank, you know, air superiority, logistical supplies, and the like notwithstanding, the Panther stands out in a very positive way. With that said, strategically, the Panther was a failure. It had to be transported around by rail, which is fine in your own country, but that mobility declines rapidly once you have to rely on captured trains and railways. Not to mention, you had partisan interference in places like all the occupied territories of the Soviet Union, Poland, France, Italy, etc. And these same rail lines, which are supplying nearly all of your spare parts, fuel, and ammunition, not to mention all the replacement Panthers and crewmen, this constitutes a bottleneck, and it's a very risky one to have. Furthermore, as a strategic concept, manpower and experience, as the war wore on, the Panzertruppen in both the amount of training and quality of troops available began to falter and decline rapidly. Lacking in both quality and quantity of raw materials created more bottlenecks, and this even hampered the design of the Panther from the very beginning, such as the final drive and steering mechanisms, forcing what could have or should have otherwise been minor problems to be remedied in the testing and prototype phases. These were eschewed in lieu of rushing the project through to its final production phase. I cannot stress enough that there was never 
a war-winning formula for the Nazi regime, especially in regards to any armored vehicle. I mean, could the Panther have been improved before the Off-D was ever implemented? Sure. Was it going to make a difference in the war effort? Doubtful. Total war, by its very definition, relies on a complex and interwoven web of all sectors of a nation competing against those of another nation. Everything from public thought to industry to raw materials to manpower to technology to the diplomacy amongst all these nations. And I mean, even much more than that is is to be taken into consideration. It would be an arrogant and blasé statement to say that any one armored vehicle or Wunderwaffe, such as the Panther, could have made the difference. The Nazis were destined to lose. Well, let me step down from my soapbox for a moment and take it all in. We're finished, guys. Sort of. I mean, I'm positive I, I could have included some more to this series, but I am confident we covered as much of the Panther as is feasible to do in this format. When I get a chance to climb into and around a panther, I'll release a video episode or maybe an an addendum to the series. But as far as the podcast is concerned, we're going to be putting the lid on the panther for now. We've certainly come a long way from the VK30 series all the way through to the panther Osferung G and even the F. I hope through all of them, you as the listener have had the opportunity to learn some new facts about the Panther, maybe dispel some of the myths that have been floating around for all these years, or maybe this silky smooth voice of mine made that commute of yours a little bit easier. I had a fucking blast getting this podcast up and running, and I am equally excited to keep it going. I'm still learning a ton, I'm getting to exercise all of my knowledge and reading into a somewhat structured format for you nice listener folk to enjoy. I want to majorly thank you all again for tuning into this 11-part Panther series. I know there's 12 episodes up and running, but one of those was a holiday non-Panther episode. So the Panther series itself is an 11-parter. Um, you know, I, w- I wasn't exactly sure how many episodes it was going to take. And by episode four or five, when I was right in the thick of it, I thought it might never end, in a good way, of course, but it it was a lot. As in, as of this final episode, I've written 122,000 words plus some, uh, which is a lot. So thanks again for sticking with me to the bitter end. We covered a ton of ground, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue the podcast with another series. We are gaining a little bit of traction in the vast world of history podcasts, We're in 33 nations so far, which is really exciting. I had no clue I'd be able to infiltrate so many nations so quickly, so thanks again. Without getting too gushy, I want to thank my friends and family, most importantly my partner Lauren for putting up with my constant reading, writing, recording, editing, and upload schedule. It was a lot for me, so I'm sure it was a lot for her. Thanks, babe. Um, I'm working on stickers and maybe some t-shirts for the store that is yet to come. I will make an announcement once I figure out the logistics, get it, of that situation. So we can all grab some sick merch soon. Hopefully. Before we hit that intro-outro music for the last time, which is the song Mir Get Gut 
by Heinz Ruhmann und Hertha Feiler, which was popularized by the 1940 film Lauter Liebe and became a pop hit within Germany. I'll be letting it ride for the entirety at the conclusion of this episode. Anyway, I want to lay out my cards for the podcast schedule moving forward. For the remainder of April, I will be finishing and then recovering from tax season, which means I won't even begin my next slate of reading and writing until May at the earliest. I reckon I can have some episodes written by July, but I'd like to get a bigger and major chunk of the writing done before I start recording and releasing episodes. Meaning, I will be back in August with the first episode in the Sherman series, hopefully. I'm pretty good at keeping a fairly rigid schedule, so I expect to meet that August mark without any foreseeable issues. You'll be hearing from me before then, I'm pretty sure. I have some things in the pipeline that will warrant an announcement and possibly even a one-off episode with a friend or a co-host. So stay subscribed and you'll receive any alerts and new episodes and announcements as they come up. All right, folks, I know it seems like the last few minutes have been one long rolling goodbye slash conclusion, and that's basically what it has been. So I'll keep this goodbye quick. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to the Panzer podcast. It really does mean a lot to me that you all sat through and finished the Panther. We have so many more armored fighting vehicles to detail, so this is by no means a goodbye. It's more of a see you later. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram, at the Panzer Podcast, where I will be posting relevant photos to this last episode and the conclusion of the series. If you like what we're doing here, I would appreciate a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or wherever you're listening, because it does help us reach new audience members, and I super appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst und mit Rat und mit Tat als mein guter Kamerad mit mir durchs Leben gehst. Ich will Freude und auch Leid mit dir teilen, ohne dich fang ich gar nichts mehr an. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil ich dein Freund sein kann. Ich sing von früh bis spät, ich sing so oft es geht, ich sing man glaubt es kaum, mitunter auch im Traum. Ich sing beim Sonnenschein, ich sing beim Mondenschein, ich sing das Volga-Lied und Hänschen klein. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Und mit Rat und mit Tat, als mein guter Kamerad, mit mir das Leben geht. Ich will Freud und auch Leid mit dir teilen, ohne dich fang ich gar nicht mehr an. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso. Weil ich dein Freund sein kann.
wäre es immer schön, dann wäre jeder Tag für mich ein freier Tag. Dann sagte ich, was auch geschehen mag. Ich sag dir auch nicht so, weil ich dein Freund sein kann. 